Hello and welcome to the July 7th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about some of the recently published material in Annals. Rather than going through all of the COVID-19 related material first, as I've been doing over recent months, I'm going to highlight material in the order it was published, beginning with an article published online on June 16th. You'll still be hearing a lot about COVID-19. In this first article, authors from the Italian Medicines Agency suggest that misinformation spread by non-peer-reviewed articles and press releases of small clinical trials coupled with the general amplification and uncritical reporting of potential cures led physicians to use many drugs off-label during the early phases of the COVID-19 pandemic with high expectations of their potential benefit. The authors describe lessons learned to counteract misleading information and emphasize the critical importance of high-quality clinical trials to identify interventions that are both safe and effective. It is difficult to argue with this perspective as one reflects on the cycle of hype and disappointment that has characterized some therapies adopted early in the pandemic based on very weak evidence. The next article also discusses clinical research in the context of the pandemic. The authors note that the COVID-19 pandemic will permanently change the way we do many things, such as educate, work, and provide medical care. They also believe that it also affords an opportunity to rethink the way we do clinical research to leverage the power of adaptive trial designs that involve collaboration among many sites to produce evidence in a much more efficient manner than our traditional ways of conducting clinical trials. If you're a regular listener, you may recall that in May, Annals began to publish living evidence reviews and living guidelines based on these reviews. The authors of these articles prospectively identify intervals and processes for ongoing surveillance of emerging evidence. On June 17th, we published the first update of the American College of Physicians' guidance on the use of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine alone or in combination with azithromycin for the treatment and prophylaxis of COVID-19. Several new studies were identified and evaluated by the ACP's Scientific Policy Committee, but the new evidence resulted in no conceptual changes to the practice advice. The ACP continues to recommend against the use of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine for the prophylaxis or treatment of COVID-19, except in the context of a clinical trial. And on June 18th, also based on a living evidence review, the American College of Physicians issued guidance on the use of N95 respirators, surgical masks, and cloth masks for the prevention of COVID-19 transmission in healthcare and community settings. In addition to standard precautions such as hand washing and social distancing, in the healthcare setting, ACP says that healthcare personnel should wear N95 respirators when in close contact with suspected or known COVID-19 patients. ACP also says that all healthcare personnel, patients, and visitors who are not in close contact with known COVID-19 patients should use surgical masks in healthcare settings to reduce the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 infection. ACP advises asymptomatic or symptomatic persons in community settings to follow community and statewide public health guidelines for mask use, which should take into account factors such as local demographics, epidemiologic data, and exposure context. These recommendations were based largely on data from infections other than SARS-CoV-2, as evidence on SARS-CoV-2 is currently lacking. As with the hydroxychloroquine recommendations, the American College of Physicians will update this guidance as new evidence becomes available. 
and Annals also published the review, which serves as a foundation for the ACP's guidance on masks to prevent transmission of COVID-19. This is a living review, so updates linked to this initial article will follow periodically. The recent deaths of individuals at the hands of police using excessive force have focused Americans' attention on a second pandemic afflicting our country, the epidemic of racism. This racism touches all facets of society, including healthcare. In a powerful commentary, Dr. Valerie Stone of Brigham and Women's Hospital discusses actions academic medical centers and their leaders should take towards eradicating racism at their institutions. Dr. Stone stresses that transforming academic culture is essential to the care of Black patients and to provide a robust community of support for Black medical students, trainees, and faculty. Go to annals.org to read Dr. Stone's commentary and to watch an excerpt from her inspiring speech at a Black Lives Matter demonstration in Boston. In the next article, authors from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and several African nations discuss the COVID-19 pandemic on the African continent. The authors describe why the international community should be hesitant in developing forecasts and prevention strategies for COVID-19 in the absence of integration of African data. Input from African leadership should be considered as they have a long history of effective measures to mitigate infectious diseases such as Ebola, Zika, malaria, and dengue, among others. In a policy statement published on June 19th or Juneteenth, the American College of Physicians articulates the urgent need to take action against the racism, discrimination, and violence that Black individuals and other people of color experience in the U.S particularly in the context of law enforcement. The policy statement details the ways that pervasive systemic racism, discrimination, and violence throughout society have adverse individual and community health consequences, making these issues an urgent public health problem. The ACP offers specific ideas as a starting point to address institutional discrimination, racism, and bias in law enforcement, suggesting strategies to increase transparency and accountability and to adopt best practices that encourage safer law enforcement practices and reduce violent interactions with civilians. The coronavirus pandemic has left and will continue to leave hundreds of thousands of bereft family members in its wake. These deaths are unlike others in recent history. Unprecedented conditions, massive numbers of casualty, forced separations during a patient's final days, the denial of physical touch, final goodbyes, and traditional mourning rituals, pose threats to bereaved family members' mental health. The authors of the next article believe that frontline physicians are uniquely positioned to provide critically needed psychosocial support to bereaved family members. To address this need, the authors offer advice on how to talk to grieving family members. Communicating condolences in the context of a pandemic is challenging for many reasons, but the guidance offered by these authors may make it a bit easier. Subdeltoid bursitis, characterized by pain and loss of motion in the shoulder, occurs in about 1% of the U.S. population and is usually due to injury. In 2012, an Institute of Medicine report concluded that evidence supported a causal relationship between injection of a vaccine and deltoid bursitis. However, epidemiologic evidence for this relationship has been lacking. In an article published on June 24th, researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report a study that analyzed data from the Vaccine Safety Data Link, which contains health encounter data for 10.2 million members of seven U.S. healthcare organizations, to 
to estimate the risk for subdeltoid bursitis after influenza vaccine. Of the nearly 3 million vaccinated persons included in this analysis, they estimated the attributable risk of subdeltoid bursitis associated with flu vaccine is 7.78 additional cases of bursitis per 1 million persons vaccinated. The authors of an accompanying editorial, who I think represent the first mother-son editorialist duo published in Annals, the doctors Fryhofer from Emory University and the University of Pennsylvania, point out that proper vaccination technique can reduce the risk of this infrequent adverse event. Go to annals.org to review proper technique in a useful figure and a video that accompanies the editorial. Next is a brief research report that shows that African Americans are underrepresented in the clinical trials that led to U.S. FDA approval of cancer medications, even for trials of those medications used to treat cancers more common in African Americans. Clinical trials have shaped the treatment paradigm for most types of cancer, and the results from these studies are generally applied equally to persons regardless of race and ethnicity. However, it is possible that the effectiveness and safety of cancer medications could differ with race and ethnicity. Researchers from Baylor College of Medicine studied participation data on drugs at FDA to determine whether those influences have affected participation of African-American persons in pivotal trials of cancer medications submitted to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for approval. They found that between 2014 and 2018, a total of 61,763 patients enrolled in clinical trials that resulted in subsequent FDA approval for cancer drugs. The proportion of African-American persons enrolled in these trials was just 7.44%. The participation to prevalence ratio, or PPR, was 0.31 for all cancers, and it was even lower in cancers more common in African-Americans. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that initiatives are needed to increase African-American participation in trials of cancer drugs. Nephrogenic systemic fibrosis is a debilitating and often fatal condition caused by collagen deposition in soft tissues and internal organs such as the heart, liver, and lungs. It has been associated with exposure to gadolinium-based contrast agents administered during magnetic resonance imaging or angiography scans. In 2007, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration released warnings about the use of gadolinium-based contrast agents in recognition of the associated risks for nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. Newer contrast agents are thought to carry markedly lower risk, but the relative safety of newer agents compared to older gadolinium-based contrasts and the degree of kidney dysfunction that confers risk for nephrogenic systemic sclerosis has been unclear. In the next article, published on June 24th, researchers from Duke University School of Medicine reviewed 32 published articles to synthesize evidence about nephrogenic systemic sclerosis risk with newer versus older gadolinium-based contrast agents across the spectrum of kidney function. Of the 32 articles identified, 20 articles allowed for assessment of nephrogenic systemic sclerosis risk after exposure to newer gadolinium-based contrast agents and 12 allowed for comparison of nephrogenic systemic sclerosis risk between newer and older agents. The researchers found that although nephrogenic systemic sclerosis occurrence after exposure to newer gadolinium-based contrast agents is rare, the results advise caution in the use of these contrast agents in patients with impaired kidney function. Accumulating evidence shows that type 2 diabetes drug classes and individual agents differ not only in glycemic efficacy, but also in their effect on mortality and vascular endpoints. 
This means that clinicians must base their treatment decisions on more than glycemic control. They must also consider individual patient characteristics such as the history of atherosclerotic disease, heart failure, or chronic renal disease. The next article I'll mention is a network meta-analysis that presents the most up-to-date and comprehensive evidence map of the pharmacologic treatment of type 2 diabetes. Researchers from Aristotle University in Greece reviewed 453 trials assessing 21 type 2 diabetes interventions from nine drug classes to compare benefits and harms of glucose-lowering drugs in adults with type 2 diabetes. The design and rationale of the evidence review were informed by patients' input regarding their views and concerns about the management of type 2 diabetes and its impact on their lives. Interventions included monotherapies, add-on to metformin-based therapies, and monotherapies versus add-on to metformin therapies. The researchers found no difference between treatments in drug-naive patients at low cardiovascular risk. Insulin regimens and specific glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists added to metformin-based background therapy produced the greatest reductions in hemoglobin A1c levels. For patients at increased cardiovascular risk receiving metformin-based background therapy, specific GLP-1 receptor agonists and sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors had a favorable effect on certain cardiovascular outcomes. These conclusions corroborate and build on the latest treatment recommendations of international scientific organizations by documenting the cardiovascular effects of all available type 2 diabetes medications and by highlighting differences not only between drug classes but also between drugs of the same class. Editorialists from the National Institutes of Health discuss the findings and suggest ways that future clinical trials can best inform individualized care for persons with type 2 diabetes. The next article is quite pertinent to the unfortunately very timely U.S. issue of excessive use of force in law enforcement. Many think that if a person is able to speak, it means they are breathing adequately. This mistaken belief led some to claim that George Floyd's repeated pleas of, I can't breathe, meant he was faking his respiratory distress when being held down with a police officer's knee on his neck. The next article reviews respiratory physiology and dispels the myth that the ability to speak indicates the ability to breathe. The typical adult takes in about 400 to 500 milliliters of air with each breath. The first 150 milliliters of air fills the trachea and bronchi. This is anatomical dead space in which no oxygen exchange occurs. Oxygen exchange occurs only when air reaches the lower portion of the lungs. Each syllable speech requires movement of about 50 mLs of air. This means that it takes about 150 mLs of air, the amount of air in the respiratory dead space, to utter the words, I can't breathe. This means that George Floyd's pleas of I can't breathe do not mean that he was able to take in sufficient amounts of air to reach the parts of his lungs where life-sustaining oxygen exchange occurs. When someone says, I can't breathe, it is imperative to come to that person's aid. In an article published online on June 26, researchers from the Ministry of Health and the HIV Network of Excellence in Madrid, Spain, and the Harvard Chan School of Public Health described the incident and severity of COVID-19 among 77,590 HIV-positive patients receiving antiretroviral therapy. The authors conclude that HIV-positive patients receiving therapy with tenofovir, disoproxyl, fumarate, emtricitabine have lower risk for COVID-19 and related hospitalization 
than those receiving other antiretroviral therapies. The author's findings warrant further investigation of HIV antiretroviral therapy in HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis studies and randomized trials among persons without HIV. Next is a commentary that discusses why the authors believe that clinical trials of COVID-19 interventions should include pregnant women. Guidelines differ in their guidance on the use of N95 respirators versus medical masks for frontline healthcare workers working with patients with COVID-19, particularly when aerosolized procedures are not involved. Authors make the case that the existing data do not show that surgical masks are equivalent in protection to N95 masks. They suggest a reevaluation of the evidence and make the argument that N95 should be routinely used for inpatient COVID-19 care, regardless of whether an aerosolized procedure is taking place. Physical activity is an important determinant of health, and it is likely affected by social distancing measures due to the COVID-19 pandemic as the population shelters in place, gyms are closed, and many people have no need to commute to work. In the next article, researchers from the University of California used digital data to examine worldwide changes in step count before and after the announcement of COVID-19 as a global pandemic. They found rapid worldwide step count decreases during COVID-19 with regional variability. So those walks that have become daily events for many do not unfortunately appear to be adequately compensating for usual activity levels. The role of SARS-CoV-2 antibody tests remains ill-defined, but data are rapidly accumulating. Next is an article that reports a study that tested 11,066 individuals to examine the characteristics of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies and assess their clinical utility. Clinical record review was performed to classify patients into the COVID-19 case group or non-COVID-19 control group. These groups were compared to laboratory control groups. The researchers surmised that antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 demonstrate infection when measured at least 14 days after symptom onset, associate with clinical severity, and provide valuable diagnostic support in patients who test negative by nucleic acid amplification tests on nasopharyngeal swabs, but remain clinically suspicious for COVID-19. Besides the epidemiologic and therapeutic applications, the study shows the potential contribution of serology to COVID-19 diagnosis which currently relies on integrating symptom surveillance, radiographic finding, and nucleic acid amplification test results. Extreme risk protection orders are filed against individuals thought to be at risk for committing firearm violence against themselves or others. In the United States, 74% of homicides and 51% of suicides involve firearms. Using extreme risk protection laws, petitioners can request restricting firearm access for individuals who pose harm to self or others. In the next article, researchers from the University of Washington studied all extreme risk protection orders in Washington state from December 2016 to May 2019 to characterize the circumstances of these orders. Of 237 extreme risk protection orders filed during the time frame, the petitioner indicated that nearly a quarter of respondents had a history of domestic violence perpetration, 62% had a history of suicidal ideation or suicide attempt, and 47% had substance use issues. The authors note that a substantial number of guns, 641, were removed from the respondents. In most cases, only one firearm was removed, but the data show up to 35 guns for one respondent. 
According to the researchers, future studies in other states are needed to understand differences and commonalities among states and ultimately examine the effect of extreme risk protection orders on preventing firearm injury and death. An editorial by authors from Johns Hopkins School of Public Health discusses these findings and highlights the need for attention to how extreme risk protection orders are applied, perceived, and received. Different genetic test interpretations are an inevitable consequence of the increased number of testing laboratories, incomplete information about the importance of gene variants, and the use of subjective guidelines and the difficulty of functionally testing rare variants for pathogenicity. These differences affect patient management and also can create confusion and mistrust in genetic testing. In addition, differences in interpretation may complicate reimbursement. In a brief report published online first on June 30th, researchers analyzed publicly available data from the ClinVar database to extract data about the critical importance of gene variants for the hereditary cancer genes and measure the prevalence of different interpretations for the same genetic variant. They found 40% of variants had two or more interpretations. Of these, about 2% of variants had clinically significant differences in interpretations, benign or uncertain significance versus likely pathogenic. Some types of differences were differences in confidence, likely benign versus benign, or likely pathogenic versus pathogenic, and others were differences with modest clinical importance. Based on these findings, the researchers suggest that a formally trained licensed specialist in genetics review the patient's clinical history, the genetic test results, and the different interpretations, and then write a report of the findings with recommendations for management. Caution should be used when acting on the results of genetic testing. Physicians who receive their medical training outside of the United States contribute a substantial portion of the physician workforce in states with a high burden of COVID-19 cases. The next article is a commentary that describes how immigrant physicians and their families may be especially vulnerable to the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic because of several circumstances that relate to their visa status. The safe reopening of colleges and universities this fall is an ongoing concern in many countries. In the next article, authors from several institutions, including the National Taiwan University, share the combination of strategies undertaken by universities in Taiwan to keep campuses open while maintaining the health and safety of students and faculty. They describe how they reopen institutions of higher learning against the backdrop of effective public health strategies undertaken in Taiwan to keep case counts of COVID-19 low. Dr. Mark Wrighton, the Chancellor Emeritus of Washington University in St. Louis, and Dr. Stephen Lawrence, head of WashU's Infectious Disease Division, believe that the plan for safely reopening colleges and universities in Taiwan offers important principles that may help to advise the United States and other countries. In their editorial, they acknowledge that there are important differences between Taiwan and other countries, but residential colleges and universities present similar challenges to pandemic control for all. Considering how well Taiwan has managed COVID-19 overall, the editorialists urge institutions of higher learning elsewhere to take a close look at Taiwan. An article published online first on July 7th suggests that early initiation at ages 25 to 30 of annual breast cancer screening with breast magnetic resonance imaging with or without mammography could reduce breast cancer mortality by half or more in female survivors of childhood cancer previously exposed to chest radiation. 
Oral steroid bursts, short courses of oral corticosteroid prescribed for up to 14 days, are frequently prescribed in the adult general population. While long-term use of corticosteroids is known to be associated with an increased risk for serious adverse events, the risks from steroid bursts are not clear, and many clinicians believe them to be very safe. In the next July 7th article, researchers studied the entire National Health Insurance Research Database of Medical Claims Records in Taiwan to examine the associations between steroid bursts and severe adverse events. They found that prescriptions for steroid bursts were associated with an increased risk for GI bleeding, sepsis, and heart failure within the first month after initiation of steroid therapy, with incidence rate ratios of 1.80, 1.99, and 2.37, respectively. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that physicians who consider prescribing steroid bursts to their patients should weigh the benefits against the risk for rare but potentially serious adverse events. Next is a case report of autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplant that appears to have successfully treated a difficult case of SUSAC syndrome. SUSAC syndrome is a rare immune-mediated ischemic vasculopathy affecting the brain, eyes, and ears. Many cases are mild and treatable, but severe cases are notoriously difficult to treat. The authors of the case report describe a patient with confirmed SUSAC syndrome who experienced persistent blindness and hearing loss for more than 16 months. After a long course of prednisone, mycophenolate, mofidil, and aspirin, in addition to other treatment regimens, her symptoms persisted. Recognizing that alternative treatment was necessary, her physicians administered an intermediate-intensity conditioning regimen and then infused mobilized CD34 cells at a dose of 6.86 times 106 cells per kilogram. Bone marrow engraftment was rapid and sustained. At five years of follow-up, the patient's disease was in complete remission without treatment, and her vision and hearing were restored. The authors cautioned that in autologous transplants, responses might be transitory since deleting every memory autoreactive clone seems unfeasible. They suggest the possibility that a matched allogenic transplant could be curative. Most of the articles in the July 7th print issue were initially published online and highlighted in prior podcasts. Among the topics in the issue are anticoagulation, primary aldosteronism, anxiety, and transparent reporting of multivariable prediction models. New material in the issue includes an in-the-clinic review on hypothyroidism and several on being a doctor essays. Accompanying the July 7th issue is an Annals on Call podcast on clinical reasoning in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And accompanying Annals graphic medicine features cover social determinants of health and the many hats that primary care physicians wear. This brings me to the end of this podcast. I hope some of these articles piqued your interest and you will go to annals.org to read them. If you do, there are ample opportunities to earn CNE and MOC credit along the way. Stay safe as you navigate a world that is opening up after months of lockdown. We're all tired of being socially distanced from the people, activities, and institutions that enrich our lives. But unfortunately, the pandemic is not over, and we need to continue behaviors that reduce the risk of illness in ourselves and those around us and prevent our healthcare systems from being overwhelmed. Stay well. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.